everyone. My name is Will, and I am one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and uh, it's a joy to worship with you all here today. Uh, we're continuing along in our series in the book of Revelation, and our passage today comes to us in Revelation 21, verses 9 to 27. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to those verses. If not, if I could ask everyone to please stand as an act of worship, we'll read the word together, or I'll read the word, and uh, as an act of reverence, we'll receive it. Uh, by faith. So Revelation 21, starting with verse 9, and I'll be reading to the end, verse 27. This is God's word. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl in the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is a lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, it's in a very elaborate uh, description in the verses that I've read. Uh, the question is, what is it describing? And most of you would probably get the sense that it's describing and giving us a vision and a picture of heaven. Heaven. And whether you're a believer or not, you probably thought about the afterlife. You probably thought and imagined what heaven would be like. What can you do? What would it look like? Who will be there? And what will be the joy and experiences if you're a believer worshiping and glorifying God as a Christian community? But not everyone has that same vision of heaven. In fact, there are different perspectives of what heaven will be like. So the well-known uh, philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said this, who obviously was not a believer. He said, in heaven, all the interesting people are missing because he wasn't a big fan of the Christian God. But I like what C.S. Lewis says about heaven, and he says, I have come home at last. He says about heaven, this is my real country. I belong here. This is a land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up and come further in. And that's exactly right. And I pray that when you read these verses and as you look into this, 
that we would feel that we came home, that we would want to, by the Spirit's power, come further up and come further in. Because John gets a vision from this angel of heaven, and in verse 9 it says, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carries them up to this mountain. He says, this is the bride. But what's interesting, he says, the bride looks like a city. Verse 10 is the holy city of Jerusalem. He calls it the new Jerusalem. Because as a bride, we enjoy intimacy and joy with God. But as a city, we enjoy a structural organization with other people in a community of a spirit-filled, gospel-centric life together. So if you look at verses 12 and verses 14, basically it says, 12 tribes of Israel are on the gates, and 12 apostles were on the foundation. 12 represents the people of God. It unites the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. The point is, is that this city is about the people. The bride is about the people. It's about the gospel-focused, gospel-centric, spiritual people of God, and this vision is about what that life will look like in heaven. It's a vision given to us in architectural form. In other words, friends, this is a blueprint, and it's a masterpiece. It's a structure. It's an architectural feat. It's an, a, an amazing construction that even the greatest architects in the world, even Frank Lloyd Wright, would be so impressed by this. And so I want you to capture the heart of this vision for you if you're a believer. It's where your destiny will be, and there are three things that we could see, at least three things that we could see that will be tremendous and have a profound impact upon your life today. One, in this city of heaven, this bride, this community of God's people, you'll see that there's a, a consummate glory. There's going to be a deep glory of God. Secondly, you'll see there's a transcendent beauty. And then thirdly, you'll see that there's a life-giving presence. So three things about this heaven. There's glory, there's beauty, and there's going to be presence. So let's look at this together. First is this all-encompassing glory of God. The theme of glory, in fact, dominates this passage all the way into chapter 22. The angel shows John the city in verse 11. It says the city comes down. In verse 11, it says this about the city. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like, like a jasper clear as crystal. So it says the dominant quality about this city is that it has the glory of God. And then you roll down to verses 23 to 26. We don't read this, but the word glory is there three times. And then in verse 23, it says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is a lamb. So it's shining glory. There's, a trans, there's, a, there's an illumination, a transcendent light that illumines the city. It's bright, it's glorious, and that's a picture of heaven. Friends, if you're not a believer today, which we welcome you, if you're skeptical, you're exploring Christianity, or even if you are a Christian, you're probably familiar with this idea of glory just because you're a human. We all have a sense of what glory is. It's in books. It's in movies. We all know, or many of us know, about the, the movie with Denzel Washington, Glory, about the, the Civil War in the 54th Massachusetts, the first African-American regiment in the Civil War. You may have seen this lesser-known movie called Glory Road about the 1966 NCAA championship with Texan, Texas Western. There's so many movies about glory, the concept and the title. Our culture and humanity has a national intuition of what glory is. We'll crystallize this for today, what glory is for you and me. Because in our passage, we at least know that God's glory relates 
to his luminosity, to the illumination, to light, something beautiful, something bright. There's a brilliance about God's glory that you can physically see that looks crystal clear like jasper. It's pure, it's holy, it's life-giving. You're almost drawn into it by faith because you can imagine how wonderful it is. But let's dig a little bit deeper. I'm going to try to crystallize the nature of glory and why all of you, whether you're a believer or not, a strong Christian or young Christian, you are a natural glory person. You, you gravitate towards glory. So when you look at the Old Testament, just to give you a sense of what glory is, it comes from this Hebrew word called kabod. And it, ha- it carries a sense of weightiness and heavy. So the idea of glory in the Old Testament is what's heaviest in your life? What has most gravitas? What's weighty? What burdens your heart? What has the greatest impression in your heart, in your life, and the decisions that you make? And on a human level in the Old Testament, the word for glory, kabod, is oftentimes translated in terms of a visible material wealth or power. So for example, it could be about wealth and abundance in Genesis 31.1, talking about Jacob. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. That word there, wealth, is the same word for glory. There's something where he's, he's just simply rich. In Genesis 45, 15, the word for glory is translated honor. It can be also understood about dignity of this wonderful character, Joseph. It says, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So even on a human level, whether talking about wealth and abundance or even power and relational capital like Joseph, there's something that's really magnificent about human glory. You're drawn to it. Even Joseph says, tell my dad, everyone come see this. He's not doing it to brag. He's saying, I'm in a position that has a level of authority. Honor, dignity, relational capital, wealth, and abundance, all of those are visible, practical expressions of what glory is. And then when you go to the New Testament, it adds more color to this picture of glory. Now, in classical Greek, uh, glory was translated as doxa, which is also in the New Testament. And that's why in our worship, we have what we call the doxology. Doxa means glory. Ology is logos. It's a word of glory. But doxa in classical Greek was simply translated as praise, an opinion, a reputation. That's what the NT, the New Testament, refers to as glory, or rather classical Greek. And then the New Testament takes this, and then it brings that out even in a deeper way. So when you take all this together, what in the world is glory? Well, one, we know that God's glory is preeminent. It has an illumination. It's weighty. It's heavy. It has to relate to a level of someone's opinion, a reputation. On a practical level, it was somebody who was, quote-unquote, special because they were in positional power or they accumulated a level of wealth. We all know that people who are famous or have gravitas, they walk in, and what do you say? That person has presence. That's basically what we're saying in our own vernacular to say that there's a level of glory. Now, here's the thing, friends. The glory that we have with Joseph, Jacob, ourselves on a human level is really good. But it's an echo and a shadow of the pure consummate glory that we see in the city in which there's a luminosity about the city of Jerusalem. It's just a shadow of something deeper in its purest form in who we have in our relationship with God. God actually is glory. He's the weightiest person in our lives. 
And that's why the implication is huge. You may want to have glory in your occupation, your education, your physical attraction, your relational capital, your power. The Bible says in of itself, those are all really good, but those are shadows to the true glory of God. What's the weightiest, heaviest reality in your life? Is it your occupation? Is it going to be your money? Or is it going to be God? Whose opinion matters the most? Is it going to be the doxa of Jesus, his opinion, his praise? Or is it going to be the praise of people for you and wanting people to glorify you? Although human glory can be good, friends, God's glory is supreme and the best. His opinion matters more. His reputation matters most. He's the most beautiful, and he's the most precious. That's a challenge. That's why you can affirm good things in this world. There is human glory as a reflection, as a shadow, but it's only a pale in comparison to the deeper glory of God. Now, this is what one counselor, Paul Tripp, says about this. Humans are glory-oriented creatures. If you're human, you automatically gravitate towards the transcendent, towards the glorious. He calls it a glory orientation. We have a natural glory orientation. We're hardwired for something greater than ourselves. We gravitate towards something bigger than what we could accomplish, the magnificent. That's why for some of us, Beethoven sounds like heaven. That's why we cheer with all our strength at the Super Bowl. That's why we yell with all our might at the BTS concerts. That's why we love the stories of the underdog. Because in our worst moments, what happens is that not only are we glory creatures, but in our sin and brokenness, we become glory thieves. We transcend, or rather we transact, and we trade the glory of God for human glory. Rather than glorifying God, we want people to glorify us. Rather than finding ultimate place and joy and satisfaction in the presence of God's illuminous glory, we rather camp out in the shadows of God's glory like wealth, love, and power, the appetizers of God's glory. So Paul Tripp says, in our sin, we become glory thieves. We become glory addicts. We parade ourselves around in self-righteousness. We talk about ourselves too much. We don't listen to others' correction. We're defensive when people criticize us. We're jealous when somebody is better than us. We're glory addicts. And that's what the Bible essentially calls idolatry and sin. But this is the point, friends, about the city. Something is lighting this city up. It's not going to be the electric company, but I think it's going to be God's glory preeminently in his son, Jesus Christ, because that's why the Bible says Jesus is the Lord of glory. When Jesus was born, John chapter 1 says, behold, the glory of the son. In Luke's recount of the birth of Jesus, he says the glory shone around Jesus, and the angel said glory in the highest when Jesus was born, and Jesus appeared with dazzling lights. God's glory is always associated with lights. Jesus was the clearest picture of glory when he died on the cross, and his resurrection is called the glory of the sun. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1-3 says Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprint, his fingerprint. One way to think about this is that you want to see glory, God's glory in his consummate form, you by faith look to Jesus' face. That's why 2 Corinthians 4-6, it says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And I believe that the city that you see here, where there's no more need for sun and moon because God's glory continues to light it forever, 
I think it centers upon the Lord of glory, the face of Jesus, shining brightly in the sun as he saved us and redeemed us as we worship him in the new Jerusalem as his bride. You know, sometimes at night, my younger daughter, Reese, she has to use the bathroom, but she's still scared of the dark like maybe many of us, even adults, are. So there's always a nightlight in her bedroom, in the hallway, but you can hear her when we wake up in the night because she uses the bathroom, flushes the toilet, and you hear these little steps go really fast back to, the, back to her room. She runs, slams the door, and she jumps into her bed. And we ask her, Reese, why do you do that? Why are you so scared? It's like, because the dark is still really scary. And the nightlight helps, but it's not fully daylight. Because light of itself does that, doesn't it? When there's light and darkness, there's comfort, there's clarity, there's a path that you could take that'll lead to the destination. And that's just a simple analogy of what Jesus as the Lord of glory, the light of your life. You're not going to the bathroom, but in the bathrooms of your life, Jesus is your light that gives you comfort, presence, clarity, and the path of decisions that you make. Jesus lights up this city for eternity. There's no more sun. There's no more moon. There's no more electric bill that you got to pay for because Jesus is the Lord of glory for you. And that leads us to our second point. Not only is there glory, but there's also beauty. If you're honest with yourself, you can recognize that you yourself, our culture, is completely enamored and enraptured by the concept of beauty. But let's talk about beauty here. In verse 19, it says this, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And all the commentators will note that the jewels are there to talk about at least the beauty of God. Then it lists the 12 jewels in verses 19 to 20. 12 jewels were the same, representing the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. So it's really the church, and there's a beauty about the church, there's a beauty about you and me, there's a beauty about God that's the consummate essence and the definition of beauty. But here's what I want you to understand. There's something really remarkable here about the 12 jewels, because the 12 jewels were also on Aaron's breastplate. Aaron was the high priest in the Old Testament. And if you didn't know this, what the high priest did in the Old Testament was that they would go into the temple. The temple is really simple. There's an outer room. There's the inner room, and then right in the center, there's a room that was a perfect cube called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there once a year, and then he would make sacrifices. He would represent all of Israel so that when Aaron did the sacrifices, all of the people got forgiveness. And so the way he represented the people of Israel in the Holy of Holies when he made the sacrifices is that he had this really shiny gold breastplate. And on the breastplate were 12 jewels, the same 12 jewels that we see in the city. And on Aaron's breastplate were the 12 jewels with the 12 tribes of Israel, so that when he comes in with the breastplate, makes his sacrifices, asks God to forgive him, all of Israel and the people of God also receive that forgiveness. That's what Aaron did. He represented the 12 tribes in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. The 12 stones representing God's people back in the Old Testament, the 12 stones here in the beauty of it representing the church today and in the city that's to come. Why is this about beauty? Well, jewelry is really shiny and it's pretty, and these are the best jewels that you could ever see. They're different jewels. There's different colors. That's probably because the church has a lot of diversity. There are different types of jewels, different reflections, and they represent different gifts and the different ethnicities and the people of God. It's beautiful. It's clear. It's wonderful. There's glory in the redemption of his people. 
It's absolutely beautiful. And if I could say this, on the day that Jesus returns and we're up there, all of us represented metaphorically by these 12 jewels, you and I, because of the redeeming work of Jesus, are absolutely beautiful. What in the world is beauty, friends? Let's talk about this a little bit. Our culture is so inundated with beauty, and especially with the advent of social media, you know, we always talk about that because it's so part of our culture, but we love taking selfies. We want to make ourselves up. There's nothing in of itself wrong with that, but it shows us that our culture is really about beauty. And this is what we have to think about with respect to how the gospel may speak into our culture understanding of beauty. Because the gospel will say this, the danger is not just understanding that you could find your identity in the quality of your possessions. The gospel also says you got to be aware of the danger of finding our identity in the quality of one's appearance. On the most basic level, this is what beauty means. Beauty, which even non-Christian articles will say this, that transcends cultures and ethnicities, on, a, on one level is just symmetry and proportion. You know, that's why Denzel Washington, who's supposed to be at one point the most handsome man in the world because his face is perfectly symmetrical. Symmetry and, por- and proportion. There's a harmony of the parts. So when you look at someone who is theoretically beautiful, they're symmetrical, their shape of their eyes are placed correctly, their nose, their mouth, everything is about the harmony of the parts. So that's why when you look at models down the runway, they look beautiful because they're symmetrical and they're proportional. But this is the problem. If you take someone who's beautiful like theoretically a model and you find out, wow, she's so stuck up. She is such a backstabber. She gossips. She's so full of herself. Then she starts not looking so attractive. Well, why is that? Because it goes a little bit deeper according to the Bible. It's just not symmetry and proportion of the physicalities, but it's symmetry and proportion of the outer beauty with respect to the harmony of the inner character. That's why that, that model isn't going to be as beautiful and attractive as before. And it finds its essence in grounding in the most symmetrical, the most beautiful, both in symmetry and proportion, but also, more importantly, holiness and character in the Trinity. One God and three persons, three persons and one God, perfect symmetry, perfect proportions, perfect love as each person in the Trinity is deferential and other-centered and loving. So both in character but also symmetry and proportion, there's a beauty. But friends, it's so much more than that when you look at the Bible. Beauty is more than looks and appearances, but that beauty is also seen, I think, even in clearer ways in the Bible with a person's character like God, his holiness. So sometimes when you read the Bible, it says that these people are beautiful, not because of the way they look, but because how, how they respond to life, how they respond to things, how they respond to people. That's why in Mark chapter 14, after Mary anoints Jesus' feet, what does Jesus say about Mary? It says she's done a beautiful thing, how she responds to feet. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. We all know that feet, they're, uh, they're not really that beautiful. You know, they're not that attractive. You know, I, I don't know anybody who has beautiful feet. You no, know, th- this past week, the staff, we were having lunch, talking about feet, because uh, some of the sisters were talking about pedicures. And I didn't know this, but not only you just paint the nails, but they'll take a file and they file your feet down to be smooth and take all the, I don't know, the, the calluses off your feet. And I was like, that's so nasty and like so gross. I was like, I would never want to do that. By the way, Director Paul was really interested in this. And so there's a, a pedicure that you could have. And when you go through that, they're like, your feet look so beautiful. But that's not the point of Isaiah. 
It's how they respond to the gospel. Beautiful feet are not those who went to the best pedicure. It's the one that brings good news, that evangelizes, that's on mission, that's about evangelism. See, the Bible affirms physical beauty and appearance, friends. You can't discount that. Women are beautiful in the Bible. Men are beautiful in the Bible. Nature is beautiful. Architecture is beautiful. The temple is absolutely beautiful. The tabernacle is beautiful. But those are all shadows. They're all appetizers of the perfect transcendent beauty of God because more than physical symmetry and proportion, it's going to be godly character and how the gospel drives people's responses, anointing Jesus' feet, bringing the good news to people who know Jesus. This is what really blows your mind. In Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist says this, I long to gaze into the beauty of the Lord into choir of his temple. So the consummate, most beautiful reality is God. But here's the thing. You can't see God. So how in the world is God beautiful if God is a spirit? That's why it blows your mind because it affirms, well, there's physical beauty. The Bible tells us, but consummate, the essence of beauty, is in God who you actually can't see, which tells us that true beauty is something that's not physical, not ultimately, not foundationally, not, not in its essence. Earthly physical beauty is a shadow and extension of the beauty of God in his holiness, his righteousness, his love, and his mercy, that character that is vastly more beautiful than the looks and the physicality of a people. So even when you make this gospel-centered, Jesus Christ, the sinless man, the perfect man, in theory, actually in reality, the most beautiful man who ever lived. Did you recognize or notice that the most beautiful man who ever lived in Jesus Christ the Bible almost says nothing about his physical appearance. So whenever you see those calendars, at least in America, where there's like blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, he don't look like that. He probably looks way more Middle Eastern. But the reason there is because the character of the perfect man and his beauty is more about his mission, about his love, about his redemption. They don't talk about how tall he was and how broad his shoulders were, or like what his face looked like in symmetry and proportion. In fact, the Bible seems to actually indicate something else about Jesus in his physical appearance. In Isaiah 53, 2, it says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him because the world looks for a beauty that Jesus doesn't. Jesus wasn't described in a physicality. Jesus was described in his love. And that's why the danger for you and me is to idolize our appearance and beauty before we finish off on our third point, let me say this about the idolatry of appearance and beauty, which all of us have a temptation with. In the prophet Ezekiel, God says through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel, I'm going to adorn you and make you beautiful, and everyone in the world is going to hear about you. And then it judges Ezekiel a little bit later. Why did, it judge, why did Ezekiel judge the nation of Israel after God said, I'm going to beautify you, I'm going to parade you down to the other nations to show how beautiful you are. Later on, I'm going to rebuke you, I'm going to judge you. Why did God change with Israel? Because in Ezekiel 16:15, he said this simply, the reason I'm going to judge you is because you trusted in your beauty, not in the giver of beauty, the idolatry of beauty. Earthly beauty will awaken a desire within us for transcendent beauty. Transcendent means above us, spiritual, godlike, which is going to be the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the beauty we see in the city, the light of God's glory, the jewels that are sparkling, crystal clear, that are really representative of you and me to say that we're beautiful 
not because we're going to be on the cover of People magazine, although that's fine in of itself, but because the most beautiful person in Jesus Christ and his love and grace upon the cross has saved you and redeemed you, died for you, gave his blood for you, and he sanctified you into his own image where we're being transformed from one glory to the next, from one beauty to the next. So the good news is that in heaven, we're just going to become more beautiful people in the way that Christ redeemed us and saved us. And that's the beauty that we could look for in the city. And this leads us to our last point. There's glory, there's beauty, but last but not least, there's presence. I'm not talking about gifts like Christmas presents. I'm talking about somebody is there with you. God's presence is seen in this architectural blueprint of the measurements of the city. Now, it's just one simple point, but read with me again the measurements in verses 16 to 17. The, li- the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width, is a cube. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. It's a, it's a cube. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. One thing to note is that this city in God's presence, it's absolutely ginormous. 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. And some scholars say that 1,500 miles in that surface area was probably generally the same size of what the New Testament world was. So it's saying that God's going to redeem this world. His presence, his glory is going to take over the universe. Is that huge? God's vision, his plans, his redemption perfection is unimaginable. Can you imagine a city 1,500 miles high? You're going to need some oxygen up there. 1,500 miles wide. It's a perfect cube of crystals, of glory, of light. And it represents the presence of God because not only is God there with his glory and Jesus lighting up the city, the cube is a reference back to the Old Testament of the temple. And the temple was all about trying to get the presence and the access to God. This is why revelation in the Bible is so wonderful When you read the story of the Bible, it seems like it's all disjointed. But if you begin in Genesis, you'll see these strands. And they begin in Genesis like a seed. And then you see the full flower of it in Revelation. You could trace this strand throughout the Bible. One of the strands that we see that begins in a seed in the garden, but now in the passage I've read is the full flower, is this idea of the temple of God and his presence. Here I'm going to share with you in a nutshell. The Garden of Eden in Genesis was supposed to be a replica of what heaven is like. You get a taste of heaven in the garden before sin entered the world. Adam ate the fruit, sin entered the world, they kicked out Adam and Eve, and from that point on, God's people were always trying to get back into the temple, the Holy of Holies, the VIP room, the inner circle, to get back into the presence of God. So how did they get back into the presence of God? They built a tabernacle, and then they built a temple. And if you read about the temple and the architecture of the temple, the temple was a replica of the Garden of Eden. Well, how do I know this? There's so many ways to understand this. The temple in the Old Testament days had a shout-out back to the garden. The tree of life in the garden was the model for the lampstand in the temple. The temple was clearly shaped as a tree representing the garden. Israel's later temple was made with wood carvings. There was flowers, there was palm trees. It was meant to call, it was meant to recall Eden's garden-like brilliance. Aaron's breastplate, you remember that with the 12 jewels and he would wear it into the Holy of Holies? Aaron's breastplate represented Israel 
it was made of the same material as the temple room of Holy of Holies, and was the same square shape as the cube of Revelation 21, and the same square shape of the Holy of Holies. So Aaron's breastplate was a cube, the Holy of Holies was a cube, the temple in Revelation 21 was a cube, saying that this little seed, you draw that string all the way from the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the historical books, the prophets, the gospels, Paul's epistles, and you find the fullest expression of the flower in the book of Revelation, saying that what we all want in our heart of hearts to be with God and to be relaxed and safe and secure in worship, all of that presence, even for broken families and broken marriages and broken friendships, and you want that healing, finds its consummate expression by the spirit-filled city of Jesus Christ illuminating the perfect heavenly temple of this cube called the city of Jerusalem. That's who we're going to worship. That's presence like you've never seen before, something that you and I want. I'm going to end with this. I had a couple of college students come up to me last week and talking about, you know, there's a vision of this. And they're saying, Pastor, well, how do I apply this when it seems so distant? And they're saying, Pastor, will you say that by the Spirit and the Gospel, you can taste it now. But they're like, I can't taste it. I can't experience this. And so I may be saying, okay, there's a cube that we're going to have the fullest expression of God's glory. Or how do I worship him now? Like, how do I taste that now? Well, this is just a thought. There's a, a counselor at CCEF. Her name is Julie Lowe. She recently wrote an article. Um, it's called Broken Hallelujahs. Broken Hallelujahs. And she basically says that in the Christian world, sometimes when we sing hallelujah, which means praise Lord, we already assume that it needs to be happy and smiley and perky. And that's true. But sometimes when you praise God on this side of glory, they're broken hallelujahs. Some of our most precious and heartfelt praise in these hallelujahs are broken because they're born out of pain. They're laments and hardship. It won't look and sound or be being expressed in an upbeat way. Instead, it may be expressed in a broken hallelujah because of broken people. And she says this, and I kind of summarize. I believe there's a lot of good that unfolds in these broken hallelujahs because they give us permission to be hurting and to struggling, even broken, but we still lift up our hands to the Lord in surrender and trust. Life is really hard. Praise can feel lifeless. It feels limp but it can still be intact and still be genuine praise. In the midst of suffering, we try to praise God, our offering of an imperfect gift to the one who's worthy and perfect in all his ways. Our faith may have taken some beatings. It has cracks in it. It's been fractured, but our faith is still there. And in the midst of a fallen world, we have a testimony of a broken hallelujah, but it's a testimony of the surpassing worth and love of Jesus for our hearts, acknowledging God's greatness reminds us that he is sovereign in the good and good in the midst of all the broken circumstances. And so though we are all broken people and we have broken praise and broken hallelujah, friends, God's goodness and character still shines through. It offers a broken hallelujah on this side of glory like Job when he says, you slay me, yet I'll still praise you. Or like Joseph, it says, what others meant for evil, you meant it for good. Or in Lamentations where he says, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love in the midst of our heartache and loss. Our broken praise displays God's glory to others, fosters a chorus of more broken hallelujahs if we give each other the grace to do so. If we need to give one another room to be weak, 
to be questioning life, to be doubting and hurting, but yet hopeful, to be struggling, yet confident, to feel a sense of loss, but yet faithful. And in the midst of that experience, which is so confusing, God says, this is your destiny. This is your future. You can taste it now. It's okay to feel hurt and realize it's broken. But for those who are really in Jesus, in the midst of brokenness, you still proclaim, hallelujah to the Lord, because we're going to enter that garden, that temple, and one day we're going to see Jesus and all the luminosity of his brilliant glory covering us and saturating us as we respond in worship. But until then, everyone lifts up their broken hallelujah by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your son, Jesus. Lord, we have a wonderful picture, but sometimes that picture may seem so distant and so foreign, but I pray that by community, by worship and church, by the spirit, by the truth of your word, we'll get a taste of where our destiny will be. Thank you for giving us by faith, presence, where your spirit resides and dwells with all of us. You have given us a taste of your perfect glory. You have given us a taste of that perfect beauty. And Lord, we know that you give us the full presence in your word by your spirit in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.